0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Stuttering Foundation podcast. This is your host, Sarah McIntyre, recording from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We're recording a research update episode today with Dr. Kara Singer and we're very excited to have her here. We'll be talking about her research study titled Clinical Characteristics Associated with Stuttering Persistence, a Meta-Analysis. She's informed me it's in the final proof stage, so actually it should be released by the time you're listening to today's episode. You can find that in the Journal of Speech, Language, and Hearing Research. Welcome Kara, and thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Kara is tuning in from Michigan. And I'm going to read her bio and then she's going to kind of tell you a little bit about herself in her own words, actually. So Kara Singer is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She conducts research related to evaluation and treatment practices for children who stutter and attitudes towards stuttering. Additionally, she teaches and supervises speech-language pathology undergraduate and graduate students in clinical and research settings. Welcome, Kara. Thank you. Anything you would add for us to get to know you and maybe your background a little bit better? Sure.
1: Yeah, so as you mentioned, I am coming to you guys from Michigan right now. I am fortunately in my office at my university, which I've been away from for months. Um, so so that's really exciting. And I'm really excited to talk about um, the study um, with you all today. It is particularly important to me. So I stutter. Um, I am one of those children who when I began stuttering, you know, when I was like two or three years old, the doctors told my parents that I would likely recover. So you know, don't worry about it, just kind of you know, wait and and watch and she'll probably stop stuttering. I didn't (laughs) and um, continued, you know, stuttering for for decades now. Um, So this is an area that is particularly close to my heart, kind of being able to hopefully improve how well we can predict whether a child is going to persist or is going to recover. And from my, you know, clinical work as a speech-language pathologist, whenever I worked with these young preschool-age children who stutter, it was just such a common question asked by parents, you know, so is there a chance that my child is going to recover from this? So I'm just happy to share kind of what small steps I'm, I'm taking and hopefully trying to improve our, our clinical practice.
0: So, so, so first for listeners tuning in, Kate, okay. Kara has shared her research with us during the virtual learning series. So you can actually check that out, her full presentation on stutteringhelp.org slash streaming. But I asked Kara, because I'm very interested in in her her study and findings to share with us for the podcast as well. So today, this is a research update episode, and we'll be talking about Kara's meta-analysis study. So you'd probably do a much better job, actually, Kara, giving us just a general overview of what you're going to talk to us about today.
1: Sure. So today, I think we're just going to briefly talk about the meta-analysis I conducted on What are potential risk factors for stuttering persistence, we're going to talk a little bit about why I wanted to do this study in the first place, some brief, you know, information about how we did it, and it took a group of us to complete this study and then what we found and how clinicians can perhaps apply it to their clinical practice.
0: So let's get into the study. Maybe give us a little bit of background. I know you mentioned your personal experience as a person who stutters, being a driving force to probably entering the field and helping us to learn more from a research standpoint. What got you interested in looking at risk factors for persistence and talk through maybe some of the beginnings?
1: Yeah, you know, it's exciting um, because I think, one of the main reasons that got me so interested in it was the risk factor chart that's available on the Stuttering Foundation website. Um, that risk factor chart put together by Dr. Yeri, you know, I think it's been in every presentation I've ever seen on evaluations for young children who stutter. I know I've put it in every presentation I've given on evaluations for children who stutter. So my goal kind of with this study was to see, you know, looking at all of the research studies that have now been conducted and published or some that haven't even been published, what risk factors seem to to still shake out. So can we add any additional risk factors to the current chart that's, you know, widely used? And perhaps can we add a little bit more detail?
0: So you first began this study when you were at Vanderbilt, is that correct? Yes, so this
1: was started off as just being a passion project. I took a class on meta-analysis, absolutely loved the class, got my, you know, feet wet and really wanted to do one on, you know, risk factors for stuttering persistence and it's kind of a cool story. Um, so when, when you do a meta analysis, you, you need to have people that you're working with so you can you know, double check one, one another, make sure that you're pulling the right numbers, making sure that you agree on what studies are being included and excluded. And you know, people are, are really busy during their, their doctoral program. So actually the first person who helped me with the study was my own sister. So she is a co-author on the the publication because her help was um, instrumental in moving the study along. And so it's kind of cool to say that I I also have a study co-authored by my sister. Um, She did the initial article review. So going through all of the titles and the abstracts, and we needed to decide, is this one that we keep or do we exclude it? And... It was really fun because, you know, she's not familiar with the, you know, stuttering literature at all. And so it actually got some really cool conversations going between the two of us. And she was asking me questions about stuttering she had never asked before. So, you know, that was a really awesome start to the study. So it was started during my time at Vanderbilt and it ended up being my dissertation, which, you know, is a cool end to the
0: study as well. That's really cool. Is your sister's background similar to yours? Is she a researcher as well? That is a great question. Yes, she is also a, a
1: researcher. She is a radiation oncologist, but, but she also has her PhD. And she was really interested in learning more about meta-analyses. So we thought, hey, I can teach you about meta-analyses. Why will you help me with this meta analysis. That's really cool.
0: To take just a step back and think in general for a second for listeners, could you explain what a meta-analysis is and what exactly you were looking for or looked at in your study? Yeah, a
1: really important question. So a meta-analysis is a type of study where we systematically look for all of the studies that have been done on a given topic. So for this study, I needed to find all of the um, longitudinal studies that have followed young children close to stuttering onset, followed them for at least two years, and determined, you know, which children persisted, which children were covered. And in those individual longitudinal studies, they needed to have looked for whether there was a clinical characteristic, whether, you know, males, or whether children with a family history of stuttering, or whether children with lower articulation scores, whether that seems to be related to whether the child eventually persisted or recovered. So so you find all of those studies that meet your criteria, and then you look at all of their findings, you do some fun stats, and you're able to estimate kind of an overall effect. So looking at all of the data that we have available to us, which which of these factors seem to differ between children who eventually persist and from children who eventually recover. So for this study in particular, I really wanted to focus on the factors that speech-language pathologists could easily collect themselves during a comprehensive speech-language evaluation. And we also wanted the children to be below the age of six at study entry so that we're really looking at those children who are, you know, who we don't yet know, are they going to persist or recover because they're, they're, they're young enough, they're close enough to onset where their trajectory is just still unknown.
0: So in your study, you weren't running participants yourself. You were taking a look at all the research that's been done within your criteria and then trying to, and I guess your wording would be better, provide some generalizations or analyses that were consistent so we could all benefit from maybe aspects that those authors didn't intend to look at per se.
1: Yes, exactly. So, you know, great first point. I didn't run any participants for this study. Um, I really stood on the shoulders of the giants who who did run all of those participants, collected this um, super important data to find, you know, if, you know, if we looked at these 10 studies that looked at whether males or females were at greater risk, what do we find? So that from a meta-analysis, our findings are coming from multiple studies as opposed to just one study, kind of looking at all their findings together, what what shakes out.
0: So the first step, you and your sister sort of sorted through and collected all of the studies that you would want to include Can you take us from there and what what the development was of the research and how you did it? And yeah, I mean, I know that's a very broad question, but go for it.
1: No, yeah, I'll I'll take a stab at it. Um, So actually, before my sister and I kind of looked through those abstracts, the first step is kind of defining your search terms. What terms are you going to put into the um, database? You know, many of us might be familiar with like Google Scholar, for example. I used PubMed, a few other different search engines, as well as looking at specific journals. When I put in these key terms, I then get a spreadsheet of all of the articles that, that have those key terms within it. So, so that's a really important step. And that's really trying to make sure that we're catching all of the studies that are out there and you get Way more than you're ever going to use, so that's what's so important about that first step of just if we look through the titles and the abstract, which ones can we immediately take out? Which ones aren't looking at you know children who stutter at all? After that, the, the next stage is going through the full text of all of those articles that you, were, that you said, hmm, maybe maybe these will fit our, our criteria in the end. And once again, you have two people doing it, doing, looking through all of those full text articles and making sure that you guys agree that we're going to keep these articles and we are going to exclude these ones. So once you have finally your, you know, your your stack of articles that you're going to be including, um, you start the long process of extracting the data. You open up your Microsoft Excel sheet, you label all of your columns and you just start entering data. And once again, we all make typos. So that's why it's so important to have someone to check you checking to make sure that you're pulling all of the right data, there are no typos, you took the correct numbers, you entered it into the right columns. From there, then, it was important to look at, okay, so what clinical characteristics are we actually going to be able to look at? And we based it on, we would look at a clinical characteristic if there were at least two different reports or two different studies that had explored that clinical characteristic as a risk factor.
0: I guess then continue to walk us through the, the process and we can get to the meat of what you actually found.
1: Sure, so I, I won't go into too much detail with the stats part, but what, what you do then is for each of the um, clinical characteristics that you're gonna explore, you you take all of the, the data from all of the studies and you then kind of see what the overall effect is based on those findings. So I can tell you which ones we, we looked at, all of the clinical characteristics, and we were really fortunate with, with the number of clinical characteristics that we could include. You know, one other important piece of this study was also realizing what clinical characteristics can't we look at yet because there hasn't been enough research yet. So it's, you know, just as interesting what, what we could include as what we couldn't All right, so we were able to look at sex as being a potential risk factor, the child's age at onset, which is what age did the child start stuttering at, family history of stuttering, um, multiple different stuttering behaviors, multiple speech-language behaviors, and we were also able to look at some measures of temperament as well.
0: I might be jumping the gun here, but you mentioned some factors you couldn't consider because they weren't really in the research that you were looking at. Would, would this be a good time to comment on those?
1: Oh, sure. You know, now, now is a great time, you know, just kind of thinking clinically what we think might be so important to assess in these young children, you know, their own reactions to their stuttering. Could that perhaps, you know, influence their trajectory of stuttering or of persisting or recovering? You know, that has minimally been explored, so we, we weren't able to look at it. Um, but I think, you know, that's an example of a characteristic that I would love to see in more of these longitudinal studies. And similarly, you know, the the parents' amount of concern or or their feelings about the child's stuttering. And also coming from some of the research done at Purdue, looking at non-word repetition tasks, which is what, you know, could be included in in a comprehensive speech and language evaluation. It's only been conducted at Purdue. So that's another one that we weren't able to include. And then I would say the the third one that, you know, really interests me so much and kind of just kicking myself that we haven't been able to include it more is, you know, just asking the parents. So so since um, the child first started stuttering, have you noticed it kind of staying the same? Have you noticed the child stuttering more? Have you noticed the child stuttering less? Um, That's been found in the the Illinois studies to, you know, be potentially a risk factor setting persistence, but it just hasn't been explored as as widely. But I, I really think that could be a particularly helpful indicator as well.
0: So you identified the studies you were using, the characteristics for persistence that you were looking out for, and others that you wish you had. Could you then talk maybe a little bit about the next steps and get into your findings or, or general themes that you, you, you found?
1: Sure. So we had significant findings for several of those risk factors. Some were expected. We expected children with a family history of stuttering to be more likely to persist, and we found that. We didn't find anything when you just looked at family history of recovered stuttering or family history of persistent stuttering, but there were also so few studies um, on those, you know, particular ones. So I would love to see those included in more studies as well, especially thinking about how it would make sense if there's a family history of persistent stuttering, that that would perhaps put the child at greater risk to persist as well. Um, But some other ones that we found, you know, males being more likely to persist than females. Children with an older age at onset were more um, likely to persist. Or really, I should take a step back. and, And the better way to say it is we found that the children who eventually persisted had an older age at onset than the group of children who eventually recovered. Some of the interesting findings were um, we were able to identify particular measures of speech and language skills that might be particularly helpful. So instead of just saying, you know, higher language skills or lower language skills put a child at greater risk, we found that the children who eventually persisted had lower scores on receptive language and expressive language measures than the children who eventually recovered. Um, Similarly, The children who eventually persisted had lower speech sound skills than the children who eventually recovered. And then I guess the last maybe surprising finding was that we found that the children who eventually persisted had a higher rate of stuttering-like disfluencies than the children who recovered. And that difference in stuttering frequency hasn't received much attention in the literature uh, previously. So that was a surprising finding to, to us.
0: Yeah, were were there any findings related to other measurements of stuttering related to length and duration or concomitant features or anything, or was it mostly just frequency that seemed to be significant?
1: Great question. So we were able to look at um, stuttering severity as well, and we actually had both parent-rated stuttering severity and clinician-rated stuttering severity, and we didn't see a difference between the two groups of children we didn't look at kind of the the duration of stuttering or even just physical concomitants. I think that that could be really interesting as well. Um, And I think for a lot of the studies that report on, you know, the stuttering severity instrument, for example, I I don't think they've reported those individual physical concomitant or duration scores. But hey, that's a great suggestion (laughs) to, to look at in the future. But uh, yeah, other than those, we just looked at kind of the frequency of individual stuttering types, and we, we didn't see any difference with those.
0: I think just from, from a clinical perspective, there's that just speaks to maybe, and I don't want to get off on a tangent, but a drawback of the stuttering severity instrument in my mind, I think it can kind of be, can can lump some certain things yeah. and be um, subjective sometimes, depending on who, who the rater is and who the clinician is and what their experience is. So I guess with a grain of salt, considering that you're you're utilizing information from other studies and not really knowing some of the the ins right. and outs.
1: Yeah, and and I think that's a great point because you know we didn't see a difference in the what what we called clinician rated stuttering severity, most of them, you know, using the stuttering severity instrument because, you know, you know, two children can have a score of 20 but why did they get that score of 20? Did they earn it from the physical concomitants? Did they earn it from the frequency? So I think you're exactly right. If you're able to kind of perhaps look at those more individual scores, could we have seen something not even going into reliability of those scores?
0: <laughs> sure. I didn't mean to take us down a rabbit hole. There. No,
1: it's just, <laughs> that is a great path to go on.
0: <laughs> well, are, are there any other findings or things that surprised you that you'd like to share? I think, um,
1: you know, when I have presented on this study a couple of times now, I think the biggest surprise is the finding that we didn't have a significant difference looking at emotional reactivity, looking at emotional regulation. So I, I feel like that's one where maybe clinicians are really, you know, seeing, hey, this seems to be a factor that helps us. And we just haven't picked it up yet in the research. Um, But temperament was another one where we only had two studies who have looked at it so far. So, you know, with with more data our you know, these findings could change. So it's so important to always continue to kind of update these meta-analyses, especially as more studies are conducted.
0: So you you mentioned and referenced the Stuttering Foundation Risk Factor chart. and I remember from your your virtual learning session that you you, you did a comparison in, in adding some things or from from your study findings. Could you walk us through maybe how it looked before or how the original looks and maybe what additions or changes you would w- would suggest based on your findings? So for the
1: original um, risk factor chart on the stuttering foundation, a lot of the similar risk factors, the family history of stuttering, the age of onset, gender, and then, you know, they, they also had time since onset on that original one, which we weren't able to look at, but I would definitely keep it on, on any risk factor chart. Kind of the, the differences would be on the original one, for example, they just say language skills, and it may be advanced language skills, delayed language skills, or disordered language skills. So I'll start with the strengths. So a strength, of, a strength of this meta-analysis was that we were able to look at individual language skills. So like I said, we found, you know, when you look at those children who eventually persisted and compare them to the children who recovered, we saw a difference in specific language skills, those expressive language um, and expressive language And then there were so many measures where we didn't see a difference in. So we didn't see a difference in, you know, expressive vocabulary, receptive vocabulary, measures coming from language analyses, MLU, IPSEN, developmental sentence scoring. Um, So that can kind of help clinicians determine... Okay, what measures of language might be important for me to include in my evaluation? The drawback to the meta-analysis is since we're just comparing groups, we lump all of the children who persist together, we lump all of the children who recover together, We, we have just that one finding of, as a whole, those children scored lower. I think it very well could be that we also have children who persist who also had, you know, exceedingly high language scores as well. And maybe those really high language skills could put a child at greater risk. But we just couldn't find, you know, those contradictory risk factors within the meta-analysis. And then the last one, um, or not the last one, but an additional change to the risk factor chart would be, you know, adding that greater stuttering frequency, um, since we did see that that differed between the children who persisted and children who recovered. And then, yeah, just for, you know, on the original risk factor chart, they have other speech production concerns. And our finding support that we found that the children who eventually persisted scored lower on those measures of speech sound skill than the children who recovered. So so there aren't a lot of differences, that we didn't necessarily expect there to be. But it, but it is a nice feeling to think maybe we have, we have added some additional information that could help inform speech-language pathologists.
0: I was hoping we could spend a, a minute talking, or longer. Uh, we 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 could spend some time talking about clinical implications and how you are hoping your research findings impact a clinic, clinic, clinicians, and 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 our our effectiveness in therapy.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's, that's the reason why we do this, right? How, how do these findings kind of hopefully improve or advance our clinical practice? I I think these findings just really support how important it is to conduct a comprehensive speech and language evaluation. Just kind of assessing the child's um, stuttering isn't enough. We know that it can be so valuable to learn more about their history, When did they start stuttering? Are there other family members who stuttered? And, you know, taking the time to administer some some speech and language assessments as well, for for this study, you know, it points out how those um, scores on those assessments might be related to the child's eventual, eventual trajectory of persisting or recovered. Um, but kind of just taking a step back and knowing that we have so many children who stutter who do have concomitant disorders as well and wanting to be able to, to pick those up and identify those within an evaluation. So, you know, I, number one, conducting those comprehensive uh, speech and language evaluations. A second thing that I think is really important is, you know, acknowledging there were so many risk factors that we couldn't look at yet. And just because you wouldn't see them necessarily on a risk factor chart doesn't mean they're not important to collect. So, you know, once again, thinking about how is the child reacting? How is the parent reacting? What's the environment like? Even though we don't have much information about how they're associated with stuttering persistence yet, they're still so important in an initial evaluation. And like you said, to really drive our clinical decisions when it comes to treatment.
0: Are there any future areas of research with within the same area for you ahead? Or what, what does the future look like?
1: There are definitely future directions. I'm, I'm still very unhappy with even this little risk factor chart that, that I've created, kind of just knowing or saying, you know, a child with lower language scores or a child with lower speech sound skills. I think that's limited in how helpful it is in really helping us make these, you know, evaluations about a child's chances of persisting or recovering. Um, So right now I am collaborating with some other researchers and we're once again putting our data together, looking at, you know, all of these children that we have years of data on and trying to explore how many risk factors might put a child at greater risk to persist. So are we looking at, are are we more concerned about children with two risk factors, three risk factors, for example? And also, are there certain kind of thresholds? At what language standard score are we more concerned about? Would we consider that child to be at risk because their language score is a little bit lower? Is it a 100 standard score is it a 90 standard score? So so that's what we're doing right now, and I'm really excited about that work because you know I, I could see that being really helpful. Or perhaps we say, you know what? we, we looked at these risk factors and it, it's it's not helping us accurately predict. So I, I just think that those are our needed next steps, especially just thinking about do children with more risk factors are they really at greater risk than the children with, with fewer risk factors?
0: Along those same lines, and I don't know if you looked at this or found any, any, anything like this, but were some risk factors weighted more heavily in chances of persistence? For example, what was family history a more heavily weighted risk factor than others?
1: Wonderful question. And I'm sorry I didn't bring it up before. So kind of another benefit of doing a meta-analysis is it does estimate the effect size. So how large of a difference is this? And so we could compare across the, the risk factors that we found. And so yes, like, like you would expect um, that family history was, was a, l- a larger difference, even larger than we found for, for gender, actually. For the other ones um, where we just kind of looked at um, differences between the groups of children who persisted and recovered, the one that was most helpful was that age at onset, Next was speech sound skills, then the stuttering like discluency frequency, followed by receptive language and expressive language. So, so that is, like I said, another benefit because, you know, we, we all have limited time in these evaluations. So perhaps kind of knowing based on these findings, which ones have those larger effect sizes perhaps can kind of help clinicians decide, I definitely want to include this in my evaluation.
0: Hey, thank you, Kara, for walking us so thoroughly through your study and findings. I'm wondering if you could summarize for our listeners any take home or takeaway points you'd like us to remember.
1: Sure. You know, I think that the biggest takeaway point would just to be continuing to conduct those comprehensive speech and language evaluations for these children who stutter. We want to know more than just how often they're stuttering or what their stuttering sounds like. We we want to know When they started stuttering, um, whether there's a family history, we want to know about their skills. And then looking beyond these clinical characteristics that we found to be associated with stuttering persistence, You know, I think it's just so important to always take the time to learn about the child's reactions to their stuttering and their communications and and the parents as well. And uh, yeah, I would also just love to take a second to emphasize that I don't think stuttering persistence is our only consideration when determining treatment for these young children. It's just one piece of the puzzle that I think can be informative.
0: So we have been closing out each episode with, with a similar question for all guests that doesn't pertain necessarily to your research in particular, but there's been a growing theme, I guess, personally and within Stuttering Foundation to really honor and tell the stories of people who we've learned from. Could you share a piece of wisdom uh, within the field that you valued that you hope to pass on to others?
1: Sure. I think what I have, you know, thinking back, thinking about my own experience, kind of learning from other people who stutter. One thing that I just want to, you know, always instill in my students who are going to go out and become speech language pathologists, and will hopefully work with children and adults who stutter, is just to say, it's okay. It's okay to stutter. It's okay to be upset about your stuttering. And it's okay to say not today. Um, Those were three things that I learned in my mind very late in the game that I think would have just made my experience with stuttering completely different. You know, no one told me that it's okay to stutter. We always just worked on how to be fluent. I always thought it was so important to hide, you know, how I felt about stuttering. I thought that I already had one mark against me with the stuttering. I didn't want my bad management of stuttering and my negative reactions to be a negative uh, mark as well. But, you know, looking back, you know, having those negative feelings, you know, sometimes I tell my students, it it makes sense. (laughs) It makes sense. And we want to acknowledge like, yes, that's okay. And just learning to advocate for myself. Um, You know, when when I was younger, I remember one time in class, I just didn't want to participate that day. So I just envisioned all my family members dying just one at a time. So I would, you know, continue crying. So then I wouldn't have to talk. And how much easier would it have just been to just go to the teacher in the beginning of class and just say, you know what? I don't have it in me today. I, I need a break. And so I think that's a really important message to send uh, to our clients as well. It's okay to say not today.
0: I love that. It's okay to say not today. And it, it might feel like a different day tomorrow, but Exactly. it's okay today that it's not yeah. today. I mm-hmm. like that. Well, thank you so much, Kara, for taking the time out of your busy afternoon grading. I know you have a lot to get back to, but we so appreciate it. So thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: A special thank you to everyone listening. Really appreciate you tuning into season two. Looking forward to being with you all again soon.